This is Dr. Frank Leon Roberts. And my name is Aldo B. Martin. And this is Finding James Baldwin. The year is 1941. While fighting went across the world, life went on in the United States. M&Ms were invented in 1941 as a means for soldiers to enjoy chocolate without it melting. The candy was sold exclusively to the military at first, but eventually it made its way to public consumption. The breakfast cereal Cheerios was introduced. Life expectancy for the American man was 63 years of age. The average life expectancy for the average American woman was 66 years of age. The top five names for girls were Mary, Barbara, Patricia, Carol, and Linda. While the top five names for boys were Robert, John, William, Richard, and James. It is within this cultural backdrop that James Baldwin gives us another story in the Magpie, entitled Mississippi Legend. Twas Annie Simpson has told me this here story, and I ain't a saying as it's the truth or a lie. Annie Simpson's a real respectable woman, and she ain't got no cause to lie to me. I've been knowing her all my life, and she's one of the sweetest children I know. Annie used to live down on a farm in Mississippi. Twan't her farm, but she used to work it on a sharecropping basis. You know, that means she was working for somebody else and giving them half of the crops at the end of the year. Annie says that everybody down there was real religious, but she says she never seen a woman as religious as Maddie Jones before. She says Maddie was so blame holy that she wouldn't even straighten her hair or light her stove on Sunday. Said Sunday was a day of rest, and that folks oughtn't to do no work at all on that day. On Sundays, Maddie went to church real early in the morning and stayed there all day, singing and shouting and praising God. Sometimes she stayed there till way early Monday morning. Annie says she was as pious as anybody, but she could never stay there that long. She had to get some sleep sometime. Anyway, Maddie was always the leader in something like that. Well, as I said, they was all mostly sharecroppers down that away. But this year the crops hadn't been so good. To tell the truth, 
there was reports of a blight about ten miles away from where they was, but that didn't scare them none, cause the blight was almost always down that way, but it hardly ever bothered them. The folks who lived down where the blight was used to come up Annie's way, begging them for a loan of flour or sugar or fat back or sometimes even money. Annie says they never had much, but they would give them what they could. Well, Annie tells me that one day, Maddie Jones came a-running over to her house, all excited and everything, and her face and her eyes was shining, and the first thing she says is, Annie Simpson, what you think is going to happen? Annie says she was so surprised she couldn't say a word. She stares at Maddie and then she says, No, Sister Jones, what's the matter? Maddie just looks at her for a minute and then she says, Almost in a whisper, Child, the Lord done told me that a terrible plague gonna come on us. Annie says she just sinks down on a chair. On us, she says, why? The Lord says he's angry at our backsliding. Maddie says, her eyes shining. He says he's going to punish us and make us behave ourselves. Annie says she just sat there and she couldn't say nothing. It sounded just like something you read in the Bible about the children of Israel. It didn't sound like nothing that would happen now in times like these. Annie says she didn't know what to think. Maybe the Lord will stay his hand if we repents and fasts and pray, says Maddie gloomily. Anyway, that's what Isaac wanted to do. You going to tell the rest of the folks, Annie asks her. Maddie just looks at her. Yeah, I'll tell him. Ain't going to do no good, though. Well, after a while, Maddie went and Annie sat there thinking for a while. And then she got up and started cooking supper. The next day, the rest of the folks got wind of Maddie's revelation. And all you could see anywhere was gangs of people all huddled together and excited and talking about it. Most of them was kind of skeptical. Dat Maddie Jones, says Sister Williams, she's always seen something. Lord got anything to tell me. He sure knows where I lives, says Mamie Wilson, tossing her head. I knows I ain't done nothing, drones Deacon Jones. My life is clean. If the Lord say we done backslid, we must have done backslid, Deacon Jones, says Brother John, kind of strict like. It don't do us no good to boast ourselves. I got something to boast about, says Deacon Jones. More'n I can say for some people. What you talking about, says Brother John, getting mad. You knows what I's talking about, says Deacon Jones. What was you doing in the fields with Martha Lee the other night? Now looky here, says Johnny, flashing fire. You keep that girl's name out your mouth. You keep her out the fields, says Deacon Jones under his breath. Now, brothers, 
Be nice, says Mamie. We ain't gonna fight. We wants to find out if what Maddie Jones says is true. I's the deacon, says Deacon Jones. Look like if the Lord had something to tell the church, he'd tell me. Don't forget we got a pastor, says Sister Mary. You ain't everything, Deacon Jones. I knows that, daughter, says Deacon Jones. Kind of hurt like. But the Lord might show me something too. I's next to the pastor. Seems mighty funny to me that the Lord would show Maddie something. He didn't show the pastor, says Sister Williams. It show do, says Brother John. Here comes the pastor now, says Sister Lizzie. And sure enough, down the road, they saw the pastor coming. And then from her house, they saw Maddie coming too. Jesus, whispers Brother John. Maddie reached them first. Her coming made them quiet and fidgety. Praise the Lord, she says. Praise the Lord, they says, not looking at her. The pastor was coming closer. Sister Lizzie coughs and says, <coughs> Sister Jones, what's this we hears about some plague the Lord done showed you? Maddie looked tired and kind of washed out. Her voice was hoarse. The Lord done showed me, she says, that y'all ain't living right. They didn't say nothing. But Annie says you could see they didn't like that a bit. He says y'all done backslid, Maddie says. He says that if y'all don't repent, he gonna smite the crops with a plague. The pastor joined them. When Maddie saw him, she got quiet and her eyes got big. Praise the Lord, chillin, says the pastor. What's the matter here? They just stood there and fidgeted and looked from Maddie to the pastor and from the pastor to Maddie. They didn't say nothing. Well, says the pastor, smiling and frowning a little too. What's happened? Deacon Jones coughs. <coughs> I thinks, he says slow like, that the Lord don't showed our sister Maddie something. Annie says that Maddie talked an awful long time, and she said a lot of terrible things. Then they all got real mad, and the pastor says if Maddie don't take back what she said, they's gonna put her out the church. These things ain't true, he says. The Lord got anything to show the church. He'd show me. The Lord don't told me, says Maddie. Ain't no devil. You got a devil, says the pastor. If you don't take back what you done said, we's gonna put you out to church. The Lord done told me, she says doggedly, that y'all ain't living right. That's a lie, says the pastor. Maddie just stood there and licked her lips and didn't say nothing. Tears started rolling down her cheeks. They just stood there looking at her and saying nothing. After a minute, Maddie turns and crying quiet like, 
walks across the fields back to her house. About a week later, the blight came. Every crop in the region was ruined. Folks went out to the fields, and the fields stank, and the plants fell apart in their hands. Folks looked at each other, feared and puzzled, and nobody says nothing. There was nothing they could say. But Annie says that Maddie's piece of ground seemed to be almost shining, and her crops wasn't touched. And Maddie, head and arms raised to heaven, walked through the fields, crying and appraising the only God she knew. Twas Annie Simpson as told me this here story. And I ain't a saying as it's the truth or a lie. But Annie's a real respectable woman, and she ain't got no cause to lie to me. The first thing that I think about when I hear this story, the first word that comes to mind is introduction. Mm. Here's what I mean. In one of the previous episodes, you mentioned how Baldwin was raised by people from the nor- people from the South. Mm-hmm. Raised in the North by mm-hmm. people from the South. So he's a Southerner by proxy. Yep. Right? And this is, you know, the people that raised him spoke English in a certain way. And the reason introduction comes to mind is that For the boys at Clinton High School, remember we mentioned before that James Baldwin was the only black writer on the Magpie staff in a school of 5,000. Right. So this is the first time a lot of his peers, a lot of those white young men at Clinton High School are either reading or seeing this type of English being spoken, Mm -hmm. right? Because in Mississippi legend, it's obviously with with the Southern... Uh, I don't want to say Ebonics, but it's just the way black people speak from the South. African-American vernacular speech, absolutely. African-American vernacular speech, thank you. And so this is the first time that they're seeing it, and this is an introduction. And I'm thinking, man, what what was James thinking? Was he thinking, I'm going to purposely do this to introduce them to this? Or was it just not even a thought? Yeah. I'm just going to write, and y'all see what y'all see. Yeah. You know, y'all get, you get what you get. I don't know what the reaction was from his peers, But I loved how, in all of the magpie, nothing is written Mm. in this type of language. In the vernacular. Nothing. I love that point, Brother Aldo, because it also speaks to how this young Baldwin, again, as a teenager in 1941, is inserting himself into what at that moment is an intense debate within the African-American literary community. So we have to- Even at that moment. At that very moment. And in fact, it is most intensely a debate at that very moment. Moment, Meaning, in 1940, you have to think about the Black writers who were on the national scene. So we have Richard Wright, we have Ann Petrie. But in the moment right before that, really the Harlem Renaissance moment, writers like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston uh, were among the first to really lean into 
black vernacular speech. It was a huge taboo for black writers to write in this vernacular, right? Um, uh, to have their literary work sound like and look like the actual speech and sound patterns of everyday black folk. And so at that moment, there's this huge debate happening in African-American literary history about whether black writers should do this, whether it's okay to write in the vernacular. So you had, again, writers like Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston saying, absolutely, let's do it. But then you had other writers who were not about that life at all. You know what I mean? (laughs) County Cullen being one of them. County Mm -hmm. Cullen, you know, very famously later said that his quote unquote problem with young Baldwin's writings is that it sound, they sounded too Hughesian to Langston Hughes. Hughes, Again, Langston Hughes writing in the vernacular. So it's amazing to see this young boy writing or, or read this young boy writing in this vernacular. Now in our 2023 lens, we might assume, oh, this is what all black writers were doing. But in fact, it's not. It was actually a renegade move for Baldwin, particularly at a place like Dewitt Clinton, to be writing in this vernacular. And I can only imagine what kind of pushback he may have been receiving from his teachers. Um, mm. So that's the first thing. Like, And then I'll also say, interestingly enough, it is not a strategy that Baldwin would go on and continue to do in his literary work, right? Let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So in the future work that he would write, yeah. right? The, 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 the works that you and I have read. Yeah. How much of it uses African-American vernacular? Very little. Baldwin was not a writer who was known for, quote unquote, writing in the vernacular, right? He certainly was very much attuned to and in love with the rhythms and patterns of Black speech and the musicality of it. But he was—he certainly was not doing what Zora Neale Hurston had been doing in the 20s, or even what Alice Walker would do in later years with a novel like *The Color Purple*. He was a writer that was very much interested. Uh, was very much writing in the King's speech, the King's vernacular, the King's English, the King's English. There you go. That's what I'm trying to say. And so, it's interesting to see how, in this early moment in his career, what we might call pre-career, okay. he's working through it. He's trying to see what does it mean to write in this speech. Um, And so that is interesting. I also would say one of the first things that comes to mind to me is that this short story we can think about as sort of footsteps toward the Amen Corner. So the Mm. Amen Corner is Baldwin's first play, written in 1955. Um, The second play he wrote, the second uh, piece of literature he wrote, period, uh, fictional work, um, after Go Tell It on the Mountain, okay. which is 1952. Okay. Actually, am I getting things wrong here? I'm getting things wrong because you had Go Tell It on the Mountain, then you had Giovanni's Room. But The Amen Corner, which is 55, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I do have it right here because Giovanni's Room doesn't come out to 56, if I'm not mistaken. The point here is this. The Amen Corner is an extension in many ways of Go Tell It on the Mountain. Mm. And it is also a work about a black religious community. Mm. But at the center of that play is a figure, Sister Margaret um, Alexander, who is this black woman who um, is a fire and brimstone preacher, which also, just a quick side, was totally revolutionary. You know, we had so many at that point in African-American literature we had many depictions of black male preacher figures, but we had very few depictions of black women preachers 
in the African-American literary canon in 1955. Baldwin's The Amen Corner really was one of the first to do that work. Point I'm making is that it is about a black woman who is shunned by her community and eventually pushed out of the church. Hmm. What we see here is a story about a religious black woman who is essentially pushed out of her community and shunned out of her community. So we see the foreshadowing 10 years earlier, 10 years earlier of many of the literary themes that we will also later see again in Baldwin's first play, 1955, the Amen Corner. So that's what I think of when I think of, um, when I think of this piece, great insight, man, great insight. And, and again, and again, the religiosity of it. Absolutely. Right. The religious theme just plays such a huge role. When when I think of this story, I think about the story of Noah's Ark. Mm. I think about the story of Noah's Ark for, for those who may not be familiar. Basically the story of Noah's Ark is a man who got a vision from God, a message from God. And he, and he warned the people that a flood was coming Mm -hmm. and nobody believed him and he was spared mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so what happens in this story mm-hmm. here's maddie telling everybody something's coming mm-hmm. and nobody's listening to her mm-hmm. and then at the end what happens everyone gets uh uh the the the, the blight the mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the wrath the wrath is put upon everybody else yeah except for her except for her and we also you know one of the things we see with these magpie writings is an interest in telling the story of black women, which is important, right? Very often, I think one of the rightful critiques about Baldwin is that he was often very masculinist in his literary representation, very deeply concerned with the workings of men and many of his novels um, center men. But he also, um, in works like The Amen Corner, in the unpublished play, The Welcome Table, which was his final unpublished play, which centered on a woman. Um, he was also interested in centering black women and thinking about particularly black women in religious communities. And so we see that here in Mississippi Legend, um, which I think is which is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. I, I, I love it, man. I, I love it. I love your analysis on this. I think this is a wonderful story. Um, shout out to Elena. And Tina oh, on yeah. this. Well, what I love about those performances yeah. is that it really does speak to, we talked about African-American vernacular speech, the musicality of black speech that Baldwin tries to approximate. Yeah. And that in masterful rendering here, the audience gets to literally hear how this particular mode of writing is in many ways meant to be performed. Right. It lends itself to a kind of theatrical staging so that you can not just read the work, but hear the work and and feel it and feel it. And And I think we do feel Mississippi legend.